The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now, the other bad one, allegorical preaching. And there I'm using allegorical not in the sense in which Paul uses that term in Galatians, but I'm using allegorical where I think it means typological. But I'm using the term allegorical uh, in the sense in which it's commonly used among us today. That that is, uh, it means an arbitrary connection of anything similar. And, uh, you know, uh, because we think by analogy, it's almost impossible uh, to be stumped on that. You can take any two things and find some relationship. And as a matter of fact, that's, uh, that's done in uh, business circles. Uh, when you're trying to work out a problem in business and you run into a brick wall and you don't see any solution, uh, then uh, in brainstorming sessions, what they propose is uh, that you work out uh, ridiculous solutions. You just come up with weird ideas off the wall. And, uh, and uh, when you, uh, you say these crazy ideas that don't solve the problem at all, uh, the strange thing is, the thing is that sometimes uh, that generates a, a useful idea, something that will solve the problem. So uh, you can connect anything with anything. And uh, there's... Uh, uh, in uh, Hoekstra's uh, uh, book on uh, Reformed homiletics, uh, he, he, he talks about uh, uh, people who preach from unusual texts uh, in order to display their skill, you know, sort of uh, the idea that uh, I, I select here from Scripture, and uh, here's my text, and a chair, and a chair. Uh, it's a biblical text. Uh, it, when... Uh, uh, the woman uh, provided uh, an upper chamber for Elisha. She furnished it with a bed and a table and a chair and a chair. So there you go. You got a biblical, uh, the biblical text and the chair. And uh, I will show you now uh, that with only this chair, I can preach a sermon for 40 minutes. See, uh, uh, this, uh, now, any one of you can do that. And... Uh, uh, no, no problem at all. Uh, you know, oh, you, you could get started. You know, um, there's the uh, rocking chair for the grandmother of the family, and there's the empty chair of the prodigal who's off and wandering, and uh, there's the high chair of uh, the little uh, grandchild. You know, and uh, and uh, oh well, uh, you go on. Uh, no problem uh, preaching on and a chair. Uh, or you could even go through a concordance and get all the different chairs of Scripture and uh, uh, what we are taught by the chairs. And uh, if, if you have studied at Westminster, you could also bring in a little platonic philosophy about the essence of chairness. Uh, <coughs> yes. Well, what J. Adams says in his book, uh, Preaching with Purpose, uh, he says that uh, 
in, a, in, a, in, in essence, he's saying where the application begins, the sermon begins. That, that the application is the point of preaching, that you, want, you have a purpose in preaching, and the purpose is to uh, influence people, that is, uh, in, a, in some sense, to affect change in people. And since your, your, your purpose is to affect change, uh, what he's proposing uh, is that you uh, organize the whole sermon with a view to the application. Uh, he's opposing preaching the sermon and then tagging on an application at the end. And uh, he wants the whole sermon to be applicatory in its structure. And he wants uh, you to not, not to say third-person things all the time, describing situations, but to, say, to speak in the second person. Uh, to say, you ought to do this, and you should uh, believe this, and you should stop doing that, and so on. So uh, Adams wants uh, uh, application and suggests that the whole sermon be structured uh, in terms of application. But now, what, what uh, in Adams' view, what determines the purpose of your message? And he says that it's the purpose of the text. Why is the text in the Bible? And if you understand why the text is in the Bible, uh, you understand really the theme of the text. So Adams is not renouncing the theme. He's saying you want to see the theme in the context of your application. So I claim that he's saying what I'm saying here in terms of significance, that you are not just expounding the meaning. See... Uh, back up. <laughs> uh, you're not just in moralism telling the truth as it was in Old Testament times, nor are you even in, uh, in uh, giving an essay in biblical theology as to how it's all fulfilled in Christ and then waking up to the fact that somehow you've got to apply it. Uh, see, that isn't what I regard as good uh, biblical theological preaching. Because it is preaching, and that means you're trying to show the significance to your hearers of what is being said. And uh, so I don't think uh, there's disagreement, really, between Jay and me. There may be on some details, uh, 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 and there would be, perhaps, in how we would structure teaching on certain passages, but theoretically I don't see a difference. Uh, because I, too, want you to see in terms of significance. And that's what you're preaching. Not, not, you see, here it could be an essay, but this is a sermon or a, a Bible study. Uh, uh, well, some of my assignments might be different from Jay's. Uh, I might give the assignment, uh, really praise the Lord for this. Your duty is to really praise the Lord for this. Uh, you heard the little message I gave in chapel the other day. Uh, yesterday, was it? Yeah, it seems like a longer time. Well, the, 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 uh, uh, you know, the point of that message, really, uh, was, in effect, uh, agree with Jay, <laughs> uh, but realize, uh, back in Old Testament times, to Abraham, we'll say, uh, so there's a difference between that and the fullness of truth as it's uh, found in Christ. Uh, there's that difference. But then there's a further difference in that you take the meaning as you see that fulfillment in Christ and 
apply its significance to your people. So there's a, you're not just giving an essay, you're giving a sermon. So this line is my way of saying that I do agree with Adams. And, and, and of course, it means you don't leave anything out because whatever's revealed here is what you find here, but you get the, the connections right. Yes, yes. I think I did, but that's all right. Man. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I have, so that means I, you know I don't have any objection to Jay's point that it's often good to form your your uh, outline in terms of significance. And what he's thinking about, remember, is not just uh, uh, some little uh, uh, insignificant. <laughs> didn't mean to get boxed up by that word, but some little insignificant detail. No, no, you want to deal with, uh, Jay says that, you know, you want to deal with the main thrust of the passage. Why is it in the Bible? Why do people, uh, and, and see, I'm willing to say even more, and not only why was it in the Bible when the Bible was written, but uh, what ought we to learn from it now, where we are in our context? And, and that's where Poitras helps a lot uh, with his uh, uh, describing of that whole structure of uh, discourse analysis. Yes. Yeah. Well, Luther did give him an F. That's right. Uh, but but you've got you've got James too. See, my brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. So uh, James, obviously, is assuming a lot and taking it from there. Uh, so he's, he's certainly writing as a Christian, but he's writing with strong emphasis on the uh, moral consequences. Uh, if you want to see how I would try to handle some things in James, uh, the, uh, I wrote a series of uh, uh, devotional meditations in table talk, uh, uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, uh, magazine, and uh, the last ones, uh, the, I think the last three issues or four issues, uh, three issues maybe, uh, I have meditations on James uh, in it. And uh, I think it's, I know James is hard to preach, I realize that, I realize that's why Luther said what he said and all, he didn't see it there, but uh, I think it's, we're just not taking seriously enough uh, the uh, the context in which James wrote and the assumptions uh, that are involved in that context and that uh, James would speak as he does of uh, Jesus Christ shows him to be a believer and he's assuming the basic structure of, uh, of the gospel. So I, I don't think you're bringing it in. You're just pointing to the underpinnings on which what he writes stands. It brings to mind another uh, matter that ties in closely with that that I'd, I'd like to, uh, to mention to you. Um, uh, the, uh, oh, Ballantyne. Uh, a fellow named Ballantyne uh, has uh, written a book on uh, uh, prayer in Israel. It's a, it's a recent uh, book, and... Uh, Fascinating. Uh, he uh, he um, tells us 
that he was um, uh, a young man at the time of Vietnam and he had his uh, problems about uh, going into action at, at Vietnam and, and uh, draft and whether he should be a draft dodger or whatever. And uh, he um, talked to his uh, minister about it. He was in a Southern Baptist church and his minister told him that uh, uh, your, your duty as a Christian is not to understand. Sometimes you can't understand, but your duty is to obey, to do what God tells you to do. And he felt that was a thoroughly unsatisfactory word from his minister. And so uh, he got to thinking about it. And then he decided that uh, in the Old Testament, um, there were people who argued with God. And uh, he got uh, quite uh, interested in this whole matter of arguing with God. And he did his doctoral dissertation on that arguing with God. And uh, the book is a very disturbing book. He goes through the Old Testament to deal with everyone who argued with God. And uh, he investigates their arguments. And uh, he pushes many of them to the point of blasphemy. Uh, I had it. I was looking for a note I had here. I, I didn't come up with it. But uh, one of the passages in Jeremiah, uh, I forget what chapter now. But one of the passages in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is arguing with God and then in the beginning of the next chapter God rebukes Jeremiah uh, uh, for his argument. <laughs> and uh, uh, what Ballantyne claims is that uh, in the Old Testament uh, people argue with God, uh, say exactly what an atheist would say, uh, but they say it to God's face. And uh, they are accusing God. Uh, well, in the Jeremiah passage uh, that I've forgotten the reference to, uh, Jeremiah says that God is a deceitful brook, uh, that he's, uh, he's waters of deceit. Uh, that as you, I guess the idea is you, you go to an Arab uh, expecting there to be some water, and there isn't any. Uh, God promises water but doesn't give it. Uh, so uh, Jeremiah accuses God of deceit. And... Uh, uh, he, he, he uh, Ballantyne pushes that to the point of blasphemy and says that uh, uh, people struggle with God saying blasphemous things and uh, he says this is always risky it, it might mean that you'd be through with God forever but uh, you've got to take that kind of risk uh, to be honest and uh, God wants uh, honesty above everything else and uh, uh, even if you say what the atheist says, if you say it to God's face, that's different from uh, saying it uh, to somebody else about him. Uh, so uh, it, it's a very, very disturbing book because you have to look at the exegesis of the passages quite carefully because he's, uh, he's done his uh, Hebrew homework well, so he's got arguments uh, for making these passages as extreme as he can possibly make them. And then he says that this is how uh, we are to relate to God. And uh, uh, we, uh, so don't let anybody tell you uh, that uh, faith is submission. Uh, faith is not submission. Uh, faith is dialogue. So you get in and tell God what you think of him, 
and uh, God will come back to you and uh, uh, he doesn't quite say how God might come back to you but anyway uh, he talks about these dialogues with God uh, and when I, I, I was teaching a course on prayer and I got quite interested in that uh, that book of Valentine's but uh, then I got to thinking uh, where in the New Testament do you have uh, prayers like the accusations of Job or like the uh, uh, the uh, some of the things even Moses says or certainly like the things that Jeremiah says uh, where in the New Testament do you find uh, those uh, statements uh, that seem to be um, accusatory uh, toward God and uh, I thought about prayer, you know, like Paul's prayers in the epistles, they're not like that. Uh, I thought of Jesus' prayer in the Gospels, that's not like that. Valentine uh, got all upset because uh, he was told that uh, the prayer of faith meant submitting to the will of God, that the prayer says, uh, thy will be done. And uh, uh, he, he wanted to uh, give us uh, room to say, uh, your will is terrible and I don't want it done. And, uh, so uh, uh, th this uh, made me think, well, where in the New Testament do you get one of these prayers asking if God is really being uh, just in a way or raising the question as to God's, uh, uh, what God's doing? On the cross. Well, yeah, Romans 9, in a way, uh, is a question of how God can reject Israel. That's right. Uh, but, of course, it isn't a scream of protest. It's an exclamation, so we'll understand. No, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's promise not to forsake his own. Jesus is the only one who's been perfectly faithful. In a sense, he's the only one that can claim the promise. And so he says, why have you forsaken me? Right? On the cross. Uh, and... Uh, and then uh, sort of a light dawned because that passage has always meant a lot to me. Uh, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and in a way I couldn't ex explain. Uh, I, I find in Jesus' question an answer to all my questions. Uh, I, I don't know if you understand what I mean when I say that, but uh, uh, the fact that he said it, uh, whose ultimate prayer is your will be done, uh, and whose ultimate prayer is into your hands I commend my spirit. Uh, the fact, of course, uh, he was searched. Uh, he was abandoned. He was forsaken. He paid a price that we can never possibly understand. Uh, and he did it for us. And because he's done it for us, because he's asked that why, it changes it for us, doesn't it? Uh, we never have to ask that why. Uh, because we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And you do not find that accusatory language directed against God in the New Testament than you have in the Old Testament. And it seems to me there's a simple reason for that. It's Christ's cry on the cross. And, and his cry on the cross then and his work for us transforms all our suffering, doesn't it? transforms it all because instead of suffering the suffering of the righteous being an inexplicable mystery uh, the suffering of the righteous 
uh, becomes communion with Christ in his suffering. He suffered for us, and in doing that, he changed the very form of suffering. He, he made it a privilege to suffer with him. Uh, so there's a tremendous change there. Uh, we'll get into some of this again because when we look uh, tomorrow at the Psalms and uh, Friday, Lord willing, at the wisdom literature, uh, we'll see how these things uh, are, are put together. But I mention it because it's so apropos of your uh, statement there about Jacob's wrestling uh, with God. Uh, but um, in, in Jacob's wrestling with God, uh, did, here's a good question to ask. It was a wrestling match. Wrestling matches were very important in the ancient Near East, you know, even in uh, uh, Sumerian mythology, you've got r big wrestling matches, Gilgamesh uh, wrestles and all. So you get all these uh, uh, wrestlings uh, and uh, symbolic sort of wrestlings too, wrestlings that have important significance, uh, ordeal wrestlings. Uh, uh, questions would be determined by ordeal and the ordeal would be a wrestling match. And uh, uh, so here is an ordeal for Jacob so you can you can situate this in the time and culture and get a lot of uh, help uh, just that way. Uh, but uh, as you uh, look at this uh, wrestling match, match of Jacob, uh, who won? Yeah, that, of course, that state, statement isn't in Genesis. That's, uh, it, where is that? Hosea, isn't it? That uh, it, it says he's, oh, uh, oh, well, maybe I'm confused. Let me look here. Uh, there, there's a further statement where it uh, talks about who won. Um, yeah, you're right, you're right. Sure, you're right. 28. Uh, your name shall be no more uh, Jacob but Israel, for you have uh, uh, striven, you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. Sure, you're right. That, there it is right there. Uh, but you see, uh, what, we're, what we're told uh, in that passage uh, that he fought with God and prevailed is uh, uh, what we're, it's also reflected on, uh, where is that? In, uh, isn't it in Amos uh, where it says uh, he fought with God? Hosea. Not, uh, yeah, I said Hosea first, then I said Amos. Hosea 12, good. Let's look at that. Uh, verse 2, Hosea 12:2. The Lord also has a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings will he recompense him. In the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, or in his strength, uh, he had power with God. Yes, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication to him. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us even uh, uh, Yahweh, the God of hosts. So uh, in that interesting passage in Hosea, uh, we're told that uh, Jacob uh, had power with God and prevailed, which of course reflects the statement in Genesis that he had, uh, that Jacob won. So Jacob won. Uh, would you have to modify how he won or whether he won? Well, what's, the, uh, what's the balancing consideration? He won, but what? Yeah, and even about whether he won, yeah? Yeah, 
Well, he was lame. At the end of the bout, he was lame. He had to go away, and you don't, they don't eat of that part of the thigh because they all remember how Jacob uh, got lame. Now, you know, a lame wrestler, uh, <laughs> and he's lame before the bout's over. So if he won, it was sure a funny way to win uh, because, uh, uh, you know, Nobody came to hit his leg with an iron bar. The angel just touched him, and uh, uh, his right leg was gone, and he couldn't push off with it, so, uh, or uh, whatever. So, uh, so he's lame. Yeah, he's lame. Uh, so he won, but he lost, and yet he somehow won by losing, didn't he? It's, it's very strange. Uh, now, how about the angel? Did the angel win? Well, in a sense, the angel lost, right? Because Jacob was determined to have the blessing, and Jacob got the blessing. Uh, but uh, did the angel win, in a sense? Yes, you've already told me the angel won, because obviously it was God's purpose that uh, Jacob would receive the blessing. And so uh, the angel also won by losing, by yielding to Jacob's prayer. The angel accomplished what the angel was there to accomplish. And uh, it's called penile uh, because that means face of God, you know. And Jacob uh, 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 was, uh, uh, began to see something of the face of God in the morning, and that's why he called it penile. Uh, some of the critics have said that uh, the, uh, the uh, angel that wrestled with Jacob was a, a night spirit, and that with the coming of the sunlight, the night spirit would evaporate or something. And so... It was a threat to the angel, and the angel said, I've got to get out of here because the sun's coming up. Uh, but that's, uh, that's not the point. The point is not the threat to the angel. The point is the threat to Jacob uh, because he's wrestling in the darkness, and he doesn't see the face of the one he's wrestling with. But if the, the sun comes up, then he'll see the very face of God, which is why he calls it penile, the face of God. Uh, because uh, in the morning, in the, the dimness of the beginning of the sunrise, he saw some of the, the liniments of the very face of God. So uh, you've got to feed that into the uh, equation. Uh, what other things uh, about that incident are important? Well, there's a lot in the language when you study the passage from the standpoint of the language. The, um, there's the fact that... Um, uh, the, the two companies theme. Uh, when uh, Jacob comes into the territory of the Holy Land, he's met by two companies of angels. It's in the duel to, to represent a double company. And then Jacob himself d divides those that are with him into two companies, according to the mothers, you know, the, uh, uh, the Rachel whom he, he loved, but also Leah. So you get uh, Leah and her children, Rachel and her children. So they're divided into two companies that way. And of course, the whole thing's about the meeting of two companies, the company with Jacob and the company with Esau, because he hears that Esau's coming with what does not sound exactly like a welcoming committee. Uh, uh, you know, he's got a small army with him. And uh, so how, uh, how is he going to meet Jacob? Uh, uh, you don't extend hospitality when you come marching with uh, uh, as many men as Jacob, as uh, Esau has with him. So uh, there's this theme of, of meeting and encounter, encountering uh, 
but you see, in a sense, this encounter with the angel becomes the central encounter for all the other encounters. Do you see that? I mean, uh, he, he met the, the, uh, the guardian angels as he came in, and he's got to meet uh, uh, Esau uh, when he gets in. Uh, but in between all those encounters of the companies, uh, there's the basic encounter with the angel that represents the very presence of the Lord, uh, which again shows us what I think we so often find in the Old Testament, uh, that uh, this is a, a theological issue, you see. And again, do you see how it's faith and grace that comes to the fore? Uh, because why is Jacob coming back to the land? Well, because God told him to. And uh, what does Jacob plead as he prays to God as he comes back into the land? Uh, you have his uh, prayer there in Genesis. And uh, uh, Jacob says that he's coming back because God commanded him to come back, which is true. And uh, therefore, uh, this encounter uh, is the basic encounter. Uh, Jacob... Uh, uh, fears uh, to disobey God, uh, but he's been a, a cheater and a deceiver, uh, but now he wants to claim God's promise and he wants to seek God's blessing. And even along the way, uh, even though he did wrong things, he was seeking for uh, the, the, uh, the right thing. He was seeking to receive the blessing of God. So you get the agony of the combat and you see uh, Jacob's crisis there in his encounter with Esau, but underlying that, his encounter with God. That's what's fundamental to his life. And then uh, you, you see uh, in the combat, the, the, the fearful adversary that comes against him in that deadly bout through the night, and also the crippling touch of the angel, uh, and the fact that Jacob comes to know his adversary, who really has all power over him. He can't possibly win in his own strength. He's, uh, he's touched uh, and lamed by the angel. But the, the agony of the combat leads into the wonder of the victory, which is a, a triumph of faith, uh, because uh, Jacob must strive, he, he must persevere, he must hold on, because this is his only hope. And he, he is therefore trusting in God and in the promise of God, and uh, in his prayer, he claims the blessing as one who is unworthy. See, very different from the attitude he had shown before. So it's a triumph of faith, but it's also a triumph of grace. Uh, the victor, by grace, is Israel, the lame prince. Uh, he uh, strives with God, he has power with God and prevails, and he receives uh, God's blessing and sees God's face. Uh, he's... Uh, delivered from the hand of God, not just from the hand of Esau. And uh, he can see Esau's face in 33.10 because he's seen God's face. Uh, Cast me not away from your presence, hide not your face from me. So, uh, you see, the important thing is that the blessing is connected with seeing the very face of God. And that... Uh, you see how that drives you forward to Christ, necessarily. And so the victor uh, who is um, uh, Jacob, in, in a sense, uh, the victor by grace is Jacob, 
uh, the victor of grace is the Lord at Peniel, and uh, he uh, would lose by winning, and he would win by losing. It's an interesting interplay there. And then not only the Lord at Peniel, but the servant at Peniel. Uh, you see, uh, it isn't always uh, easy homiletically uh, to do this, and that's why the point that was made, the very important difference between the actual sermon outline and all the exegesis that supports it, because uh, the difficulty about Christ in the Old Testament is an embarrassment of riches, uh, because Christ is the Lord, and he's obviously in this scene as the theophanic angel. It's the... Uh, uh, it's a theophany. It's Jesus Christ before the incarnation appearing and wrestling with Jacob. So he's there as the Lord wrestling with Jacob. So it's, uh, uh, it's Christ who gives uh, Jacob the blessing. Uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, epiphany uh, of Christ the Lord. But the other side of it is Christ comes to be the servant, to fulfill the calling of the servant so that he is the true Israel, as uh, he's called in Isaiah 49. Uh, so who is it that has power with God and prevails for us? Well, of course, it's Jesus Christ. So uh, he is himself the victim. Uh, he is the suffering servant. He is smitten of God and afflicted. And uh, there's an interesting little tie in there, and that is that... Uh, uh, Jacob's thigh is uh, where the angel touches him and where he's lamed. And the other places in the Old Testament where Jacob's thigh is referred to, there are two other occurrences. And in those other occurrences, the, the thigh refers to uh, the uh, seed, the descent. Uh, it's uh, a euphemism uh, for the organ of generation, for the sexual organ, see? And so you don't have to talk about the sexual organ directly. You talk about the thigh. Like uh, Abraham's servant, remember when he went to find a, a wife for Isaac, uh, he swore with his hand on Abraham's thigh. Well, that means uh, uh, the hand was placed on the thigh, but placed on the thigh with reference to uh, the, uh, the seed of Abraham, with reference to those who would be descended from him sexually. So uh, the fact that the thigh is used in the other two occurrences with reference to uh, the sexual organ and therefore to the seed or the descendants of Jacob uh, is interesting. Now, that's the kind of thing that uh, you might or might not want to make use of uh, because of uh, the delicacy of describing these things, perhaps, although uh, after the recent trial, all delicacy seems to be gone. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, ne but nevertheless, uh, 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 no, I mean, you know, theologically, how much you want to go into that, uh, I I'm convinced that there's a real connection there that the... Uh, uh, the wounding of Jacob is with reference to his seed. That's why the angel touched him there. Uh, and it is in the seed of Jacob that the, uh, uh, the, the blow will be struck and that Jesus himself uh, bears it. But uh, Jesus, of course, is, uh, as the servant, is the victor. Uh, he, uh, uh, he lives uh, as the one who is struck and receives the blow. Uh, he's the one who prevails. Uh, 
and uh, wins for us the victory. Which gets back to where we started, that uh, uh, the reason you don't have the adversarial uh, relationship uh, in the New Testament in the way you have it in the Old Testament is because of the resolution of that in Jesus Christ, who is the one who is our prince and who represents us and who has prevailed with God in our behalf uh, in the agony of the cross. Um, well, I hope, uh, I hope that you, uh, I hope that you'll see the importance of um, realizing that, that the whole Bible is given to us in the context of God's redemption. That's what God's doing, isn't it? He's saving his people. And that redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And these, these stories that are told to us and are preserved for us, uh, sure, they have different levels of significance. Sure, there's an assurance here for Jacob that he will receive the blessing. And uh, yes, uh, Paul builds on that. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The, there's the difference between Jacob and Esau. And it's Jacob who gets the blessing in spite of all his deceits and everything else. Whereas it's Esau uh, who in a certain sense is wronged, but uh, is wronged uh, because of his own complete insensitivity to any meaning of the promise. <laughs> I mean, he's willing to sell it off for a bowl of soup, so he, he couldn't care less. Uh, but uh, uh, nevertheless, there's the distinction between Jacob and Esau and Jacob prevails because he hangs on, because he won't let go, because he must have the blessing, the desperation of true faith, uh, but also the, the symbolism of grace that's evident here in the purpose of the angel in appearing to Jacob and in confirming the blessing and the promise to him. So uh, uh, I, I, what I was trying to do just then, you see, is to suggest a kind of way of dealing with it, the, the, the conflict and the outcome, uh, but to pick up some of the material that you would, uh, could justifiably use in building these bridges uh, and yet realize that as you build it as a sermon, that doesn't keep you from uh, drawing inferences from it as to our relation to these things. That is to say, uh, as Jesus Christ uh, persevered for us, uh, held on, uh, would not let go until he had received the blessing for us and did triumph on the cross. Uh, nevertheless, uh, what Jesus did for us is uh, also an example to us, isn't it? That uh, we lay hold on him and we don't let go, uh, not in any adversarial way, that's all been changed by Christ, but nevertheless, with a desperate grasp, the desperation of faith still applies. And so in that sense, there is a, a proper moral ap application uh, that there's a desperateness to the way in which we lay hold of God. Well, um, uh, tomorrow we'll... Um, don't forget, uh, uh, for tomorrow, if... Uh, if somehow uh, digging cars out of the snow and things like that, uh, you didn't yet get to look at a, a passage, uh, uh, look at one uh, and uh, 
uh, tomorrow, uh, look at one from the historical uh, prophets. One from the historical prophets. Now we want to uh, think about <coughs> uh, the praises uh, of uh, the Lord. We want to look now at the Psalms and uh, the Lord willing, uh, tomorrow, uh, look at the wisdom literature. Uh, but we're going to look now at uh, uh, preaching Christ in covenantal praise in uh, Christ in the Psalms. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm departing slightly from the outline, but I'll, I'll be getting back to it again. And don't get nervous because, uh, again, uh, we're having a little trouble catching up with the reproductions of things. But I have a separate sheet uh, that will be reproduced today, and we'll, you'll get it so uh, before the day's over. So uh, we'll, we'll follow along with that, first of all. <clears throat> now, uh, the reason I want to uh, come at it this way is that I think that uh, this way of presenting it uh, will help you to communicate it to other people, uh, how you find Christ in the Psalms. Now, your major outline is put together in a little more uh, scholarly fashion, I think. Uh, but uh, this is a little more, um, uh, well, a little more dramatic in a way. Uh, because what I want to point out to you is that uh, Jesus Christ is related to the Psalms in two ways. First of all, he sings the Psalms. Uh, Christ is a singing Savior. And in the second place, we sing to him in the Psalms. Uh, he is the Lord of, of the Psalms uh, to whom our praise is addressed. So uh, I want to uh, look at it that way with you this morning. First of all, the singing Christ, the Lord sings. <clears throat> now, friends, <clears throat> we might suppose uh, that the Psalms uh, represent man's response to God, that uh, God reveals himself in his covenant law, tells us who he is, and then we respond either uh, with petition or with praise or with thanksgiving, uh, that uh, uh, there really uh, are the two sides of the covenant evident here. The law, God speaking to us, the Psalms, uh, we speak to God. Uh, but we must not forget <clears throat> that the Psalms, too, are part of uh, God's covenantal revelation. And in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, in the 31st chapter, uh, before we are given <clears throat> the Song of Moses in the 32nd chapter, in the 31st chapter, this is what God says to Moses, verse 19. Uh, 31, Deuteronomy 31, 19. Now, therefore, write you this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? So that uh, the song of Moses is uh, given to him that he may uh, give it to the people so that they will memorize it and sing it and it will be a witness against them. <laughs> and uh, it certainly is, you see. 
because while the song talks about uh, uh, God our rock, uh, his greatness, his work is perfect and all his uh, uh, ways are justice, uh, yet the psalm goes on to talk about how the people have uh, uh, provoked him to anger uh, with uh, their vanities and so on. So it does uh, condemn the people. It traces the history of Israel to some extent, limited extent, uh, but uh, it does give uh, the picture of God's faithfulness in contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness. So it's worth noting uh, that the Psalms are not simply a human response to divine revelation, but the Psalms are divine revelation. They're given uh, to, Mo the Song of Moses is given to him by God, and that's the pattern uh, for the inspired Psalter, that it is given uh, by God uh, to his people. <clears throat> now, as to uh, Christ uh, singing the Psalms, Christ as the singing Savior, uh, we have that uh, noted for us uh, in the book of Hebrews. Because in Hebrews and the second chapter, <coughs> we read, verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praise. Now there it says that Christ is not ashamed to call us uh, brothers uh, because he sings in the midst of the congregation. And that quotation is from the 22nd Psalm and the 22nd verse. So there, the author of Hebrews applies to Jesus Christ uh, the climactic words of that 22nd Psalm. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the assembly, will I praise thee. <clears throat> now that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, we all know that Jesus used uh, the words that open the 22nd Psalm. Uh, they're the words he used on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the first verse of the psalm is a verse uh, that uh, is given uh, that it might uh, prepare us for Jesus' own cry. And therefore, uh, the 22nd verse of the same psalm is also viewed by the author of Hebrews as uh, uh, belonging to Jesus. So, you see, it's not just the first verse that happens to be appropriate for Jesus' use on the cross. The whole psalm is given to us uh, as a messianic psalm. And, of course, uh, this has often been noticed in Psalm 22, how very uh, amazingly appropriate it is uh, to the crucifixion. Uh, verse 14, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death, and then uh, they pierced my hands and my feet, I may count all my bones, they part my garments among them, 
upon my vesture did they cast lots. Uh, the New Testament makes a point of the explicit and detailed reference to the sufferings of Christ on the cross that we have in the 22nd Psalm. Uh, so the whole psalm is a psalm of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this does raise some questions that I think really ought not to trouble us. Uh, the question might be asked, is the psalm completely prophetic? Uh, does David, writing by inspiration, uh, write this psalm with uh, no reference whatever to his own experience? does he simply write prophetically that this will be the psalm of the suffering Messiah? Uh, or uh, does David take an alternative position? Uh, does David describe merely his own sufferings and uh, then in a way that he neither intended nor foresaw, uh, does this turn out to be amazingly applicable to the sufferings of Jesus? And of course, uh, Obviously, there's a, a middle way on that, uh, which uh, I think is the right way, that David does write poetically about his own experiences, uh, as he often does. He does write about the sufferings that he has gone through, but uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he also writes prophetically, and therefore he writes about he uses figures of speech which for him are figurative, but which for the fulfillment in, in Jesus Christ become remarkably literal. <laughs> and that uh, he is speaking out of his own experience, but also speaking prophetically so that it points forward to the experiences of Jesus Christ. Uh, just a little kind of footnote on that. <clears throat> you know... Um, I wonder if you can see how some of the specific literalism of this psalm is like God underlining something. Do you see what I mean? Uh, that what has to fit is this, that you have the picture of the suffering servant in the Old Testament, the righteous man who suffers for God's sake. And David, of course, was one such man all his sufferings in the wilderness being driven around by Saul, that was all because he was the Lord's anointed and Saul saw him as a threat and was jealous. Uh, David hadn't done a single thing against King Saul. He supported him loyally and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't touch him really. And so David was innocent, Saul was guilty, and yet David, the righteous one, suffered for the Lord's sake. And uh, so David could well say the reproaches that them that of them that reproach thee are fallen on me, which he says in the 69th Psalm. Uh, so the reproaches against God and God's ordering, and specifically God's ordering of David's anointing, uh, this all is uh, the, the burden that David must bear. So the, the overall picture is there is the righteous suffering servant and the overall fulfillment is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate righteous uh, suffering servant. But then when you get little things that underscore it, uh, mention, uh, they become like little extras or little pointers uh, to the fulfillment. Uh, 
Jesus, when he, uh, Jesus himself does that underlining uh, when he uh, comes into Jerusalem uh, with two animals, uh, uh, the, upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And you see, he's fulfilling the, the words of Zechariah in a remarkably literalistic way. Now, he didn't have to do that. It's obvious enough uh, that when Zechariah writes those words, he's using Hebrew parallelism upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And the way we would understand that rhetoric normally is uh, that he's talking about Jesus coming in on a young animal. <laughs> and uh, uh, you say upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass, you don't really mean two animals. It's a rhetorical repetition in familiar Hebrew style, and uh, Zechariah writes that way, of course. Uh, but then when Jesus uh, involves two animals in the triumphal entry, of course the critics all say uh, Matthew was so stupid he didn't understand the thing about Hebrew rhetoric, and uh, uh, therefore when he read it, he thought there had to be two animals, and so he simply invented another one. And anyway, Matthew liked to double things up. He threw in an extra blind man and so on. So uh, uh, you, you mustn't uh, mind Matthew when he, uh, etc. Uh, but, but see, <coughs> uh, if we credit Matthew's account, as uh, uh, we well may do, and I believe we really must do, well then, what happened? What happened is that... Uh, uh, Jesus took the two animals, <laughs> involved the two animals, to make it utterly clear to the people that the prophecy was being fulfilled. Uh, as soon as they see two animals and a triumphal procession, uh, it becomes perfectly obvious that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9. Now, <laughs> uh, that is... Uh, an instance of what I think you do find in other places. Uh, in my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, uh, but it also says they gave me gall and vinegar to drink. Now, uh, some have felt that, well, the gall was uh, uh, the effect in Christ's own body of his uh, agonies, uh, uh, the... the uh, the, uh, the nausea and so on that would come from literal gall uh, in his body. And so he got the gall that way, and then he got the vinegar. Uh, but uh, you see, that's an unnecessary uh, burden that an interpreter is, ex is, is taking on himself uh, because uh, uh, the gall and the vinegar are, are both uh, originally uh, expressions of uh, bitterness being given to the sufferer. And the fact that Jesus was literally given vinegar on the cross is uh, a little extra, an underlining, <laughs> that he indeed was uh, uh, given only bitter things by his enemies, and he was actually given vinegar. Uh, do you see why I make a little uh, point of that? Uh, so that you won't think that every prophecy has to be fulfilled to that degree of literalness. 
uh, that the, the, the literal underscorings are put in there so that there will be no mistaking that this is indeed the work of God. But we are not thereby compelled uh, to make everything uh, totally literal uh, in figurative language because uh, if language is figurative, the fair way to interpret it is figuratively. And uh, if it is literal, it's to be interpreted literally. But sometimes uh, literal expressions have a figurative meaning, obviously. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's why I made some point of that. But uh, here is this psalm that describes the sufferings of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and the whole psalm belongs to him. And so it is he who cries out, why? Why hast thou forsaken me? And we talked about that yesterday, uh, the effect that the why of Jesus Christ has on us as his new covenant people, uh, how the answer is given uh, to the cry of the righteous sufferer, not only in the Psalms, but also in Job, uh, and uh, uh, also as it comes to the fore, even in the, some of the historical narratives, and certainly as you find it in the prophets, notably Jeremiah. But uh, the cry of the righteous sufferer is all concentrated ultimately in the cry of abandonment that Jesus Christ utters from the cross. But he, of course, calls to God the only prayer of Jesus, which isn't addressed to the Father, the only one where he says, My God, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Uh, so from the depths, he cries to the heights, uh, cries to God uh, with the cry of abandonment. So the suffering servant sings. 